I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, my name is Stuart Miles and welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. Peloton previously announced Guide back in November 2021 and is now introducing the TV connected camera designed for strength training to the UK, US, Canada and Australia. Apocalypse editor Chris Hall was at the UK launch this week and is here to tell us more. Meanwhile, I've been catching up with John Lau, a previous podcast interviewee, if you've been listening for some time, who's been working on the recently released Monument Valley 2 Plus and is here to talk about Apple Arcade, how games are changing and whether there's going to be a Monument Valley 3 anytime soon. And then Chris comes back to talk about the new Tesla Model Y. He's been driving the crossover electric vehicle and is here to tell us whether it's any good. But before, before we talk cars, Chris, let's talk exercise and in particular Peloton. And it's probably best to start by explaining what Guide actually is and how it's different from the exercise equipment we've seen from the company to date. Yeah, so Peloton Guide is a new entry and Peloton are pitching this as their cheapest hardware, so their cheapest way to access the Peloton system. It reminded me very much of the old Kinect from the Xbox. It right. is a connected camera. You plug it into your TV um, and it's a nice, compact, fabric-wrapped, modern-looking device, as everything seems to be fabric-wrapped these days, and mm. the Peloton Guide is no different. Uh, it's a 4K wide-angle camera. It can then watch you as you exercise, which sounds a bit creepy, but it's not. And that means that there is a, an additional degree of interactivity when it comes to doing some of Peloton's guided workouts. And as you'll no doubt know from Peloton's bikes and the treadmill, the company is all about you finding a workout program that you want to do and watching and following along with somebody else who encourages you and talks to you while all of your stats are being tracked alongside all of this. The thing that Guide does is use that camera to check how your body is moving to make sure that you're actually doing the exercises you're supposed to be doing and sort of keep track of what you're doing that way. And and that, as you said, that sounds very much like uh, Microsoft Connect with that skeletal kind of overlay that it used to have to work out where you were so you could wave your hands at it and stuff like that. Is it is it that simple in the sense of it, it's looking at, you know, you've got to be in front of the TV, it looks at how you're moving uh, and then y give you advice well, from there? Yes and no. But what it really seems to be doing is looking at the overall form of your movement so it can recognize if you're supposed to be doing a squat and you decide to do a dumbbell curl, it knows that you're not doing the right movement. And that's what it's that's what it's really doing. And but the, but the clever thing is that you don't have to count your reps. You don't have to keep up. To, uh, you don't have to keep in time with the instructor if you don't want to. You can go faster or slower um, as you might do in any class. But what it does is it is it can detect that movement and it will keep score of things. So basically it gives you a target to hit to say this is the number of, of actions that you should be doing. This is how many reps of this exercise you should be doing. So it doesn't go quite as far as Connect, which was able to detect individual limb movements and things like that, because I know I remember using it for dancing games where you could have a whole collection of people dancing and it would be able to track all of that. Hmm. So it doesn't seem to have gone quite that far. 
it might go that way in the future. That sort of remains to be seen. At the moment, it's really about saying you're supposed to be doing a lunge and you're just standing on one leg. Therefore, you're not doing the exercise. So you do, you get no credits for this. You're a very bad boy for not working out properly. <laughs> now, I presume because it taps into the Peloton classes, it's the same sort of Peloton experience that if you are aware of the exercise bikes or treadmills and, and you've had a go or you've got friends that have a go, you know, really upbeat, let's go Peloton, get excited, shouting at you. Yeah. Yeah, it's very like that. And that's actually one of the th- things that I think is is attractive about it. And that I, I I think that's one of the reasons for Peloton's success is that, that there is a variety of instructors offering a variety of workouts. And as you say, the motivation is constantly there. They're always talking to you. And they, I mean, the most amusing thing is, is that they'll ask you questions. And obviously, you don't reply because you're standing in your front room and you're not actually there and they can't hear you, but they give you the opportunity to reply to these questions, which is much more like a real life gym experience where you're working out with an instructor in a, in a guided session. Um, so, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a kind of replication of that thing. Obviously this doesn't involve the bike or the treadmill. So it's a bit like extracting some of the boot camp experience that, that already exists in Peloton and making it into a, a guided workout. It's really about focusing on strength training here um, you you will need uh, some basic equipment. You'll need some dumbbells and things like that so that you can do some of these resistant tra- training. There is quite a lot of um, body weight actions in there, as well as guidance through things like warm-ups and cool-downs and stretching and uh, and and lots of activities. And that that's, that's the thing that's really going to appeal to people is that there's a lot of variety in there and it is very upbeat and you are encouraged and motivated all the way through. Now, you were able to go to the launch. You've, uh, from what I can gather, you've actually done a guide session. Yeah, I have indeed, yes. What was it like? Did you feel pumped and excited at the end or did you think it's a quick fad that will tire? I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, and that that surprised me, myself. I've done some guided workout stuff before. Like, it's so easy to find workouts on YouTube. Um, and and I, ha- and I have used those in the past, but this is a step above that. It's higher quality. It's sort of bespoke content. There are familiar instructors there. The enthusiasm, even if you're miserable like me, the enthusiasm <laughs> just, it just keeps you going. Uh, I, and it's also amazing that these uh, <laughs> these instructors can constantly talk whilst doing all of this exercise and you're sweating and you're panting and gasping for water and they're just chatting away like it's an it's an average day for them. So yes, I did two sessions. I did a chest and back session and then I did a uh, glutes and legs session um, because I thought I may as well have most of the body workout whilst I'm there. Uh, these were both 10-minute sessions. There are longer sessions. Um and, and yeah, I mean, it's a great thing for those people who don't want to go to the gym, who are embarrassed because perhaps they don't think that they fit in or they don't like other people or they don't like queuing for equipment or they are just intimidated by the whole experience. Then it gets gets them gives those people a chance to do some of this stuff at home. And also it's going to appeal to people who are time poor because going to the gym is great. But going to the gym also mm. includes traveling to the gym, getting changed, doing all that stuff. In this case, it's it's in your front room. Uh, you know, you could you can just do it. You you get home from work. You just say, "I'm just going to go straight into this." Or for all of the people who are now working at home, it's it's ideal. You can cram in your workout at, in the lunchtime without having to leave the house at all. 
And finally, do you think, based on all that, it sounds like a positive experience so far, do you think this is going to be a success for Peloton? Yes, I think it is. But I think that it will have the same problems that other fitness products do, which is that a lot of people are enthusiastic about things and then they have a problem maintaining that. That's mm. the same across the whole of the gym industry. It happens with you know, all of these indoor all this indoor equipment that people buy that they buy, they use it for a few months and then they stop or they get bored or they give up. And I think that it will still suffer from that experience. Uh, it's worth noting here that you have to pay for the camera in the first place, which is uh, £295 or $275 in the US. Um, and, but then you have to pay an ongoing subscription as well. And that will start in the UK at £24 and then go up to £39 in 2023. And it's worth noting that that £39 is the same as the subscription you'd pay if you were a Peloton bike owner. If you do have a Peloton bike, you can buy the guide and you're already a subscriber, so you don't then have to pay anything else. So if you're already in the Peloton ecosystem and you want to do more strength training with more guidance, then yeah, pay your money by the camera and you you can dive straight into it. Still to come, Chris gives us his verdict on the Tesla Model Y. The long range offers 331 miles of range and will do 0 to 60 in 4.8 seconds, uh, which is a, a, a substantial range and impressive performance by any measure in electric vehicles. When you step up to the performance, you're still getting about 320 miles of range, but that the uh, the 0 to 60 speed comes down to 3.5 seconds, which it's 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 funny that when we look at these speeds you don't really think very much but 3.5 seconds is actually incredibly fast scarily fast when apple arcade launched in 2019 its pitch was simple deliver a monthly game service for iphone ipad and mac users that would give them a range of games to play without having to worry about spending any more money beyond the monthly subscription nor be bombarded with ads Almost three years later, has the company delivered on that promise? Has it changed the type of games we play? And how does it fare against other gaming services on other platforms offering something similar? Wanting to find out more, I caught up with John Lau, a senior producer at Us2 Games. The games developer has been key to the Apple Arcade offering to date, with a number of titles available on the service, including the recently announced and added, hugely successful Monument Valley 2 game. I started by asking John what was different with the new version of Monument Valley 2 Plus on Apple Arcade. Well, so the first thing I should say is that um, I wasn't around for the initial launch of Monument Valley 2, which was back in 2017, Um, but I uh, was a producer on bringing Monument Valley 2 to Apple Arcade, so Monument Valley 2 Plus. Um, And so that initial launch um, really is just for Apple Arcade subscribers, and it includes both Monument Valley 2 and the additional um, chapter called The Lost Forest, which we completed for the Green Game Jam. Um, So really, it's just a kind of porting of uh, the Monument Valley 2 that you see on uh, the App Store over to the Apple Arcade platform. Now, a lot of people, you could argue that Monument Valley is kind of a game that it was kind of designed for Apple Arcade, Apple's subscription model, mm. you know, of gaming before even Apple realized that it wanted a subscription model for gaming mm. just because of the kind of almost serendipitous type of play that involves. Do you think that fits? Do you think that's a good description? Does that fit well? Or do you think there are specific games that that are destined for Apple Arcade that, that I haven't described there? Yeah, interesting. Um, so I think, I think that um, at first blush, um, 
Monument Valley and Monument Valley 2 gameplay uh, tend to be uh, thought of as kind of, you know, one and done experiences, right? Mm. Like uh, they're uh, very beautiful hours of your life. Um, and, uh, you know, you play them once through uh, and that's kind of it, really, I think. Like they're, they're kind of thought of as beautiful artifacts in, in their own right. Um, and so on that reading, you would think to yourself, well, for a subscription service, like, you know, how does that kind of, does that, does that really work? I'm not really sure. Like, you know, that's not necessarily the kind of um, content that um, you would initially really thought, think that um, uh, would, would do well for subscription-based services, right? Sure. Um, but what's interesting is that um, if you think about, well, firstly, we've seen that um, there are many, many players out there who just kind of return to Monument Valley and Monument Valley 2 as if as they would return a, a good book, right? Like, you know, after a certain amount of time, you just kind of want to be in that world again. And it, it doesn't really matter that you sold the puzzles before because they kind of seem to come to you afresh, which is really lovely. Um, but also, I think um, things like Apple Arcade and subscription services in general, um, when they think when you think of them as building up a library of titles, as a series of uh, games that you have access to whenever you like. Um, the way I'd like to think about the Monument Valley games is kind of as um, kind of classic titles in a way, if that's something that we can say ourselves, modern classics, if you will. Um, and so that's something that you can, you know, that is that is just in your library, like a like an, an old and fam a familiar and beloved book that is on a shelf sure. and then you pick off the shelf after a while. And do you find that's the same this sort of, that approach with, as you said, it's kind of these classics that you like to return to mm -hmm. and, and, and that do you, Apple Arcade feels like it, it is games that are slightly, uh, be careful not to annoy publishers that aren't on there, but mm -hmm. it feels that it's slightly more artistic and artisan in, in their approach. Do you, do you feel that Monument Valley and, and some of the other two games, you know, fit into that, that marker? They've always had that kind of sort of artisanal kind of, feel to them rather than you know the ad heavy uh you know buy every single token you can to addition, you know gain mm. extra revenue and, and things like that right yeah so uh okay so there there are kind of two things i want to respond to in that question the first is um the general aesthetic of us two games or the kind of creative intention of us two games in general right and and it feels like um there's a premium uh you know, us two games made their name with Monument Valley and a, a premium model, which is uh, there is a particular aesthetic um, gameplay vision, mechanical vision, uh, an artistic vision um, for a game that you pay for up front. And uh, this is the best game that we can make. Um, you know, do you want to play it? Okay, please, uh, you know, please buy it and enjoy. Um, and that, I think, um, allows for a certain kind of um, attitude to the kind of creativity that comes to um, to what you're making, mm. um, and so in that sense, yes, that like you know, us two games titles and back catalogue do seem to fit into that way of thinking. Um, as to the point, part of the question, which is, do subscription models like Apple Arcade uh, emphasize that rather than? Um, what you kind of describe as, you know, buy as many tokens as you can, all that kind of stuff. Um, are they an are they an effective antidote to that? Or oh, antidote? I don't want to say antidote, but like, um, are they a a different way of monetizing games or um, uh, allowing players to access games? I think the answer is kind of. I think 
well, the, the thing is, Stuart, I think you and I have actually spoken before about um, the way in which content or media be, is affected by the way in which it's funded, right? I, yeah. I think the last time you and I spoke, I went on a long diatribe about sitcoms and, and um, agreed, yeah. you know. Um, well, uh, I remembered. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was. Uh, I really enjoyed that um, conversation. So the thing is, when free to play is as uh, the dominant was the dominant um, kind of uh, form, the profit incentive really, when you're making a video game, if you're a studio, the profit incentive is to design games in a very particular way, which is to encourage as many small purchases as possible. Right? That's not necessarily the choice that every studio takes, but it is definitely what the profit incentive uh, points you towards. Now, subscription-based models have have changed that. Um, and so you can be said to be moving away from buying as many tokens as you can. Um, but uh, it is still about um, retention. It's about getting players to come back. Um, and uh, so I think whilst it'll be a while yet until we're able to see how that affects video game design, like in a broader sense, um, I'd say that is the kind of game that Apple Arcade and subscription-based services um, will incentivize more does that make sense yeah no I, 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 it's, it is that question isn't it of whether there's two questions that come out of that one is do you think that we'll move to a future you know especially with the recent announcement on a console level that sony is now getting into sony playstation plus and they're really mm -hmm. going to double down on that against microsoft's you know xbox games pass you know you're seeing that the big consoles are going down this subscription model of his 300 400 700 titles to mm. play to bring new life to those classics that you know is a, either a nostalgia play or something you might not play for a while and you can still play and enjoy or it's that you know and, and therefore do we think that that's where that's where the industry is going to go for the next couple of years and that will be with apps as well you know monument valley isn't the first apple arcade game that us two has but there are still games within the us two catalog like the classic whale trail from mm. all those years ago that that aren't yet on apple arcade mm. uh yeah well so if the question is do we think that that's where the video games industry is going to be mm. um i think like signs certainly seem to as you say point in that direction um and like i said i'm i'm not sure I'm not sure it's necessary. It's well, put it this way: subscription as a as a model is is definitely here to stay as a way of consuming games. It's not going anywhere. Um, it might not necessarily be the be all and end all. It might not, like you know something else might come along. Might it's very likely to come along actually. Um, I also think um, what I'm most interested in is now that that is starting to bed in as a model for funding games. Um, how does that affect the kind of games that get made? Like, what changes do we see as a consequence of that um, in the design of video games? Um, and we're, we're yet to kind of see that, I think. Yeah. Now, last time I spoke to you with a different games company, with State of Play, and we were mm. talking about South of the Circle. <laughs> Did you, and now, and now you're here at us too, do you, do you feel that as an industry that's, you know, they were both very beautiful games, very artistic and mm. and in that approach is that is that something that appeals to you or do, do you hope to help us to create even more kind of storytelling and artistic telling in, in the same vein me personally well yeah. yeah i mean i think i think my personally as a game maker um and someone who works on games what i'm most interested in is um the ways in which um 
games as a medium provide a new and interesting language for storytelling. Um, and that was something that uh, we were exploring on South of the Circle, and um, and it's definitely something that that like us two games has has shown is absolutely possible with the amount of the way in which you emotionally engage with the the characters in Monument Valley and the Monument Valley games. Um, and so I think I'm definitely interested in seeing how we can bring about emotional responses in our players and connection with characters and connection with ideas, whether those ideas are about, um, you know, motherhood uh, and, uh, you know, the, the and growing up in Monument Valley 2 or forgiveness in Monument Valley 1 um, or uh, engagement with um, environmental issues and uh, kind of grassroots activism in ALBA. Um, I think there are absolutely ways in which there are unexplored ways in which games can do that and do it very effectively. Um, and I, yeah, I'd love to get into that at us too. I think it's already being done and I, I'm just excited to do more of it. And I have to ask the question, hmm. do you think there'll be a Monument Valley 3? So I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you any specifics here, but I am, uh, we are currently, um, staffing up for, uh, the next installment of the Monument Valley series. So that's kind of all I'll say. There'll be an, another installment of Monument Valley. Um, and, uh. Yeah, that's that's pretty much about it. And and while we wait with a bated breath of that, because that sounds really <laughs> exciting uh, as a fan of, the, of the, both the original game and the new game, the new chapter within the, uh, as you said, Modern Value 2 Plus, as, you, as you're calling it, for, mm. the, for Apple Arcade. So that has a new Lost Forest chapter. Yes. How much fun was that? And, and what are the challenges of that to kind of come back to it a couple of years later? Oh yeah, I mean, so big, big shoes to fill. Obviously, um, as I said, I didn't work on the original Monument Valley two, um, but coming on to uh, the project uh, when the team was gearing up to make that um, extra chapter, which was our um, response to the Green Game Jam organized by Playing by, uh, Playing for the Planet, um, I think. I mean, it's obviously a quite a frightening, worrying thing, to, <laughs> you know, to be to be. Uh, um, to be walking in those footsteps. Um, but I think as with anything, which is much beloved and, uh, highly regarded, um, I think there is absolutely a, a line to be walked between, um, doing, doing due justice to what's come before and also to, um, you know, trying to do something new with it. Right. I think a, there's a, there is a quote somewhere about um, tradition and how tradition is not the worshipping of ashes, but the preservation of fire. And I think there's something about that when it comes to um, evolving or elaborating on uh, the ideas and themes and images and feelings that are brought about from a much beloved set of experiences like Monument Valley 1 and 2. And that's kind of what we wanted to do. And so I know you've alluded to um, you're working on some new projects within that. Uh, the, the question, the final question I have is, is, is what's next for, for both you and for, for us two games? What's next? Well, um, I'm just thinking about what I can actually talk about. <laughs> Lots. Tell us, we won't tell too many people. It's okay. <laughs> um, what's next? Well, uh, I think, um, 
from from my perspective, there's another Monument Valley game in the works, and that's that's what I can tell you. And I think we're currently in um, in concepting with that, and we are like in in full development with that, and uh, you know trying to trying to do the absolute what what I just as I just said, trying to um, walk that line between doing something new and um, preserving uh, preserving what's gone before us. Um, and there's also I I believe another um, I believe I can say this, uh, another us two games in the, um, that's in the works, but the precise details of that um, are not something I can go into, unfortunately. See, but there here's is me hoping that it's Whale Trail Plus. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, think, I think it was one of us two's first games, mm. I think, at the time. That was a very, very long time ago. And just the concept of, of running, you know, playing with this whale, it's, it's one of those games I keep on coming back to occasionally. I mean, sure, it's the, it's the simple ideas that stick, right? Sitting in between the Tesla Model 3 and the Tesla Model X is the Model Y. From the exterior, it looks much like the Model 3, but while offering the size that's closer to the Model X. So, is it the best of both worlds, or in trying to be something between the two, does it, well, just not really work? Good news is, is Chris is back, and he's been driving the new EV to find out. So, what's it like, Chris? Well... The Tesla Model Y sits in a space that should probably be its most attractive vehicles. It's in that crossover or small compact SUV space, and that's where most of those cars are being sold, especially in Europe. Uh, so for the UK market, and I'm driving it in the UK, UK spec model, then I think it's a, it's a key car. As right. you said, it looks a lot like the Tesla Model 3, but it looks it's, it's kind of been inflated. Everything is slightly bigger than the yeah because when i've seen when i've seen pictures previously i just thought oh it's a model three with a hatch rather than the saloon back yeah i think i think a lot of the a lot of the photographs that you see especially the original press images have been quite deceptive because they're always taken at a sort of low sporty angle you know you don't quite appreciate how high the car is and it, it is i mean it the, the ride height is much higher so you sit in it and you look around and you're looking over the roof of of smaller cars like like the model 3 for example right. um, but the experience is very much the same though because the interior design is is basically exactly replicated uh, the the seats the interior the display the user interface steering wheel the the whole minim, minimalist aesthetic that you get inside is exactly the same as the model 3 um, and the, the good thing about that is that uh, the model 3 has been extremely popular. Hmm. And so the Model Y will inevitably follow along in that. You know, everything. If you love anything about the Model Three, you'll love it about the Model Y. There are some. There, there's one big barrier, though. I think, and that is that the Model Y in the UK starts at fifty-four thousand pounds, which is quite a step over the Model Three. And you're looking at that very same experience. So people might say, "Well, you get a little bit more interior space, but what else am I actually paying for?" And I think. When you compare it to some of the rivals that you have on the roads, like those cars from Audi or perhaps BMW, Mercedes, um, there is a big difference in quality of the interior. Obviously, those older established brands are still using interiors that reflect their combustion cars that have evolved over many, many years. But there is a lot more going on in those interiors compared to Tesla. And I mean, Tesla's whole thing is about being minimalist and so mm. some people will want that whereas there will be some people who won't want that and for those people who don't want it there are alternatives 
And in terms of performance and and uh, range, etc., of that, is it equivalent to the Model Three, or have they taken advantage of the bigger size? Yeah, well, they're selling the long range and the performance, and so they the long range offers three hundred and thirty one miles of range, and will do not sixty in four point eight seconds, uh, which is a, a a substantial range and impressive performance by any measure in electric vehicles when you step up to the performance you're still getting about 320 miles of range but that the uh, the not to 60 speed comes down to 3.5 seconds which is uh it's 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 funny that when we look at these speeds you don't really think very much but 3.5 seconds is actually incredibly fast scarily fast yes so fast that you probably never really even want to use it on the roads um this is drag strip sort of stuff and <laughs> you know in, in in as you as you'll know because i know that you have a, a model three yeah. within the settings there is you can change the acceleration and i changed it to chill fairly early on just because I needed things to relax a little bit. I needed the Tesla yeah. Model Y just to calm down slightly and make sure that I didn't leave yeah, the road. Yeah, we any kind point. of when when we've got you know guests, passengers in that have never sat in a Model Three before, we kind of uh, we call it the giggle seat because if you put your foot down when they're not expecting it, they instantly start laughing because they don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, and I know uh, one of my f- a friend has got a Model S and he's got um, the performance model. Um, he's too afraid to to go off and try and buy ludicrous mode uh, or plaid or whatever they want to call it these days. But because he kind of describes it as a teleporter, it's like, I'd like to be over there. Oh, look, I'm over there. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, it's, and I think the other thing that's quite crazy about Tesla on that side of things is that if you get the standard model, and I presume this is the same with the Model Y, then you can upgrade to the performance model at the press of a button within the app. Uh, and pay your fifteen hundred pounds upgrade fee, or, or whatever it, whatever it is. So, which is quite again, like just be careful of thinking. Oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's press the button. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think the 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 important things that are really attractive about Tesla. I mean, we've just talked about range and performance, and it, this is impressive range. The charging infra- infrastructure through uh, supercharger network is unrivaled. It is clearly better than the other options that are on the road at the moment. Uh, the fact that you can pull over and you'll see 12 superchargers while the other network, other networks will only have one or two chargers and they may not be fast, mm. uh, that makes a massive difference. The fact that the car knows where those are and can precondition the battery before you get there, all of these little points, the fact that you plug it in and you don't have to press any buttons or authenticate, you just plug it in and then you're charged all of that makes living with a Tesla much smoother than living with other types of electric car. Now, if you're charging at home, which a lot of people do, then that becomes less important in your day-to-day driving. But certainly in long-range driving, that makes a big difference. Um, the other thing that I should say about Model Y is that it, because it's bigger, it does have quite a large capacity in the boot. Right. And it's deceptive, though, because as you highlighted, it has a slightly different back to the Model 3 and everything is open, and there's no parcel shelf. And I find that really strange for a car, especially in the UK, where the mantra is, don't leave anything on site, because if you do, you'll have it stolen from your car. Yeah. So the fact that there's no parcel shelf would kind of lead you down the line of saying, well, you can't really leave anything in the boot of your car because somebody will be able to see it. But there is a false floor, and you lift it up, and there's quite a cavernous space underneath. So you could fit quite a lot of stuff underneath the floor out of sight um but i still think in and presumably you've got the front trunk as well 
Oh yeah, there is there is the small front trunk if you really really want to hide things out of the way. Um, but yeah, I I do feel like the lack of a parcel shelf is is a strange is a strange thing because it just feels like there's a big big space there that could just do with covering so that if you've put anything in the back of the car, you've got cases in the back or whatever. And the final question, I suppose, and a final question, presumably the, unlike the Model X, the back seats can fold yes. to produce quite a big space. And is that, is it a flat, does it fold flat? So you've got a decent um, Honestly, I don't know if it is stage. completely flat. I did fold them down. There's little buttons to, in the back to just release them and fold them down. I can't remember if it's completely flat, but it's, it's flat enough. Um, so is it's a useful space. If you needed to, I don't know, take some stuff to the rubbish tip or uh, <laughs> move a child into a university mass- or something. Yeah. If you need to do those sorts of things, then it does have the flexibility to do all of that stuff. So, so yeah, it, it is, it is um, surprisingly practical. Well, that's it for this week's show until next time. Thanks for listening. Pip pip. Planning for your next trip. Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.